Okay, we are in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you'll turn there with me. And chapter 10 is really just a direct continuation of Paul's thoughts from the end of chapter 9. And I just need to remind you that when Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians, he didn't put chapter breaks in it. We added that later so that when I get up here on a Sunday, I can say, turn to chapter 10, and you guys know where you're going to turn to. But this is one complete letter. And Paul's continuing his thought at the end of chapter 9 when he's exhorting the church to run in such a way that they may obtain the prize. Now, we're, we know he's not talking about salvation because what did Jesus say on the cross? It is finished, right? So what is that prize? Well, again, we talked about why Jesus came and died and rose again, why Jesus came and demonstrated uh, the express image of God the Father. He did that to glorify the Father. And our prize is when we are walking in such a way that God is made known. That's the prize, We exist to glorify the Father. Now, the means to that end is the way we love one another. You will, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. So that's the prize. That's what we're running for. The prize is making God known in the story of his redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. And he says, discipline yourselves. Run with conviction. Meaning, understand why you are running. Know your purpose. And then he makes an interesting statement. He says, I don't box like someone who can't see his opponent. I don't beat the air as if I don't know who my opponent is. Instead, I pin my flesh to the ground. That's kind of modern day translation. But I pin my flesh down. I bring my flesh into submission. I don't allow my flesh to control me. That's his enemy When he says, I don't box like I don't know who I'm boxing against, he says, I pin my flesh down. I know who my enemy is, and I need to pin pin my flesh down, or else I will be disqualified. I'll no longer run for the prize. If my flesh takes control and I allow my flesh to dictate, remember the term flesh in scripture, it means that bent within us that bends us away from the things of God. You guys all know what that is. Right when there's Bible study coming up and it's late and you're tired and you don't want to go, that's our flesh. Or when you wake, wake up in the morning and the Lord wakes you up and says, hey, I just want to spend some time with you. And you, man, just a couple more minutes of sleep sounds amazing. That's our flesh. It's the things that pull us away from God because the reality is when we pin our flesh down and we enter into a relationship with God, we say no to our flesh and yes to him. How many times have you walked away from that thinking, man, I wish I would have served my flesh. That would have been so much. No, we walk away, we come out of that Bible study thinking, man, that was for me. I'm so glad I went. And Paul understands this. He says, I know where where the battle lies. It's in my flesh. It starts within before it moves without. And again, this is all written in the context, starting in chapter 8, of idolatry, right? Putting something in the place of God. Something becoming our primary desire other than Christ. And Paul's writing to the church in Corinth who this church was made up of people that had been called out of idol worship. Really, and we can look at it and think, oh man, we're nothing like them because they would go to temples and uh, worship false gods and have feasts around these false gods and believe that these false gods would come and join them in their feasts. Um, But the reality is idolatry still exists today. We've served so many different things, money, prestige, sex. We can pursue so many things that we think will provide value and fulfillment. And what's interesting is none of those things in the right context are wrong, but when they, they take the place of God, they become broken and distorted. See, the church in Corinth, 
They've been called out of the temple feasts, called away from the temple prostitutes. But they were going back to the temples. They were saying, I don't believe in these gods anymore, but that doesn't mean I can't dabble in some of the pleasures that take place at these temples. And Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, beware lest somehow this liberty of yours, this freedom you have, knowing that these gods are not gods at all, that there's one true God, don't allow that knowledge and that freedom and knowing the one true God become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again, lest I make my brother stumble. What's Paul's primary concern? Seeing people come to know Christ. He is a man on a mission. He is a missionary true, through and through, just like all of us are called to be. He is about building bridges to Christ. And if there's anything that exists in his life that will create a barrier to those around him from coming to know Jesus He'll remove it. It doesn't belong. It's not worth it. He knows what his life is about. He is running for the prize and he's running with conviction. So he's concerned about his witness and because he loves the church, he is concerned about the church's witness, their ability to fulfill the mission that has been placed before them to be the salt and the light in the world, the city set on the hill as Jesus describes it. So that's the context of chapter 10. Now he's going to essentially say, now consider our examples. And he's going to move to the Old Testament, which is kind of interesting because this church in Corinth, it's predominantly made up of Gentiles. But he's going to pull from the Old Testament and say, consider these examples. And this is a spoiler These are not examples of those who ran well. These are examples of those who were disqualified. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Moreover, brothers, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. What's the cloud? Paul's taking them back to the Exodus narrative, right? And that cloud was the cloud, really the spirit of God that led the people through the wilderness by day. He says, all our fathers. Isn't it interesting that he's speaking to the Gentile church and he says, all our fathers. Why would he say that? These are the, the Moses and, and uh, Aaron. These are the forefathers of the Jews, right? Well, didn't he get done writing to the Romans saying, if you're born again, you've been grafted into the promises of Abraham. You have been grafted into that olive tree. You're you're not replacing Israel. You're a part of that great narrative that God will bless all nations through the Messiah. So he says, this is, these are our fathers. They were under the cloud all pass through the sea, okay? This isn't rocket science. What sea did they pass through? The Red Sea. All were baptized into Moses. That's a strange phrase. We'll look at that. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food, which was manna. All drank from the same spiritual drink, and they drank from what? The rock. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. There is so much in these short six verses 
He says, I don't want you to be in, ignorant. These are our fathers, and they are an example to us, but they are an example of how not to live. I wish I understood this as a young man. It's strange today that pastors don't handle the Old Testament. They're unwilling to dig into the difficult parts of the Old Testament, but Paul's saying here, these men are an example to us. I wish I would have known as a young man that David's sin with Bathsheba was an example That sexual sin leads to death. It's a warning. We can look back as we study these stories, these events, these real-time historical accounts. These are a warning to us. We are getting into just the depravity of Israel. We're coming to an end of 2 Samuel. We're going to get into 1 Kings. And and you're just going to beg, if you're with, with us on a Wednesday night, Lord, come quickly for these people. Because they did whatever was right in their own minds. And they received the consequences of those things. And that's a warning for all of us. A life lived apart from God is death. We were never designed to live that way. We were created to be with him. He desires to live in us. So Paul, again, he's pulling them to the Exodus narrative and he says, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses. That's a strange phrase. When we're baptized, we're baptized into the name of the Father, his Son, Jesus Christ, in the Holy Spirit. It's an act or a public display of a private transformation that we were dead in our sins and that old man stayed dead in the ground and through the power of Christ and his resurrection we have been brought to life and we are a new creation so what does Paul mean that they were baptized into Moses well when we were baptized we were baptized into Christ's kingship and his leadership So Moses was a Christ type sent by God, just like Jesus was sent by God, and he was sent to deliver the Israelites out of slavery, just as Jesus was sent to deliver us from our slavery to sin. So again, it's just a picture that all of Israel was under Moses' leadership. They were all united as God's chosen people in their exodus from Egypt. And they passed through the Red Sea. They were led by a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. They received manna, God's daily provision for them. And then Paul says they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. Now there was a Jewish myth that 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 rock literally followed them around. That would be a funny sight to see. All of Israel just making its way through this desert and this rock is just kind of following like a stray dog. But understand what Paul was saying. It's easy to forget. Now that rock, you remember, the, the Israelites, they were crying out in thirst. And that rock provided water for them in the desert when they cried out from thirst. And Paul says that rock is Christ. Now you may say, oh yeah, it's a picture of Christ, right? No, Paul says that rock is Christ. Christ himself. Guys, sometimes it's really easy to separate Jesus and just put him in the New Testament, right? That's when Jesus comes. That's when Jesus walks on earth. That's when he, uh, the, the father calls out, this is my son and whom I'm well pleased. And, and we see him on his, on his mission, on his journey to the cross. But guess who was there during the exodus? Guess who was providing for the Israelites? Guess who was giving them manna from heaven? Guess who was giving them a spiritual drink? We serve The triune God, right? Three distinct persons in one. Jesus was present with his father. Remember this conversation Jesus had. In John 8, 54, he's talking to the Pharisees. They're not happy with him. Jesus says, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. This God that you claim, he sent me. And I honor him, yet you have not known him. 
but I know him. And if I say, I do not know him, I'll show, <laughs> this is so good. If I say, I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. And then the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, if you wanna, if you're having a a discussion with a Muslim and they deny that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and they deny that even scripture says that Jesus is God, excuse me, take him here. Because the Jews knew what Jesus was saying because this statement offended them to the core. Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was I am. What do you mean you've seen Abraham? How do you know that Abraham was looking forward to this day? You're not even 50. And he says, oh, much older than that. I have no beginning. I have no end. And he uses that Old Testament name, I am. Jesus was that spiritual rock. He was the Israelites' direction, protection, and provision. So Paul says, all of Israel, they were rescued by God. They all passed through the sea. They were led by the cloud. They ate of the manna. They drank from the rock. And think of the parallels that Paul is making with the church in Corinth. He says, you were rescued by God. You were led by his spirit. He drew you out of idolatry. He has provided for you the bread of life. And you have drank from that well that Jesus spoke about with the woman at the well. When he said, you will drink from rivers of living water. And if you drink from me, you will never thirst again. So you've received, he's saying to the church in Corinth, you've received God's deliverance and his direction and his protection and his provision. But remember this, the Israelites received all of those things, but with most of them, God was not well pleased and they were lost in the wilderness. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. They never stepped into the promised land. Now again, the promised land does not represent heaven in the New Testament. The promised land, if we're looking for uh, analogy, it means the spirit-led, spirit-filled life, walking in the will of God. Remember, the promised land had enemies that needed to be driven out. We live in a, a, a world now where we have enemies, but it's not who you think. It's our flesh the systems of the world, and the devil, right? Again, it's the part of us that bends away from God and wants other things, and then it's the systems of the world that allow us to meet those needs, that take us down those paths, that give us an opportunity to fulfill our vices and the lusts and the desires that Paul's warning us about, and then the devil who says, hey, that road is broad and there's a lot of people on it they must know something you don't know join me oh that road it's narrow it's difficult few people find it doesn't seem popular it's not drawing a crowd it must not be for you that was for dramatic effect thank you That's the battle. And these Israelites, they lost the battle. They never stepped into the promised land. They never realized all that God had for them. Had they still been delivered from Egypt? Yeah, did God still provide for them and meet their needs? Yeah, but they never stepped into all that God had for them. And we need that to land Because we may be coming up short. 
And I'm not talking about performing for, for God. I mean in receiving all that God would have for us. We've been saved. We've been baptized. God is directing us through his word. He's providing for us. He's protecting us. But have we lost sight of our purpose? And are we getting lost in the wilderness, wandering around aimlessly, never experiencing the promised land? That's what Paul is begging the church in Corinth to see. He says, how could this be? How could this nation have experienced the power of God in mighty, mighty ways? I mean, they walked through the sea and they looked on the right and their left and there was walls of water built up so that God could allow them to pass through. And yet they still grumbled and they still complained. God gave them daily food and they're like, this isn't the best. Then he gave them quail and they're just like, I'm sick of quail. And they were thirsty and God gave them something to drink and they just, we want to go back to Egypt. That's, that's our carnal hearts. That's that old nature. Paul says in verse six, these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust We shouldn't crave after that old life. We shouldn't be drawn away from the purposes and the presence of God because this is where we'll end up, wandering in the wilderness. That's what James writes in chapter 113 of his letter. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death, and I would add, in the wilderness. Guys, we can experience salvation but miss out on our purpose and that's Paul's point. As one commentator says, no one seriously considers what God did to the sinning Israelites and still takes lightly their example. Look at verse seven. So here's Paul's application. Okay, here's our example. The nation of Israel They experienced the power of God, the mighty hand of God, his direction in their provision, his salvation, but they were still idolaters. They still turned back to the things of the world. So he says in verse seven, do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. That word play is sexual play nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell, nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Don't complain as some of them also complained and, would, and were destroyed by the destroyers. Now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have Come, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. Guys, this is one of the reasons I love that we go verse by verse through scripture. Because to be honest, if we didn't, I may be tempted to avoid this. This is heavy. Listen to what Paul's saying here. Paul is saying that God delivered the Israelites and then destroyed them. What? God rescued the Israelites, and then one day, 23,000 of them fell? And he sent serpents into their, I mean, he's, he's pulling from all these events in, again, that Exodus narrative. Because God is just. Is that something we forget? Oh, he, He is a God of mercy and he's a God of forgiveness, but he takes sin seriously. And sometimes we don't. 
We, we sometimes look at our salvation and we take our rebellion against God. Well, I know he loves me. Of course he does. But do you think he'll allow you to continue in sin and let that be your witness to the world? What do you, what do you mean? What is he going to do to me? I, I know he loves us. And because of that love, he'll do whatever it takes to get our attention. Because he is a jealous God. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Paul is quoting Exodus 32.1. Let me read to you the events that were taking place in Exodus 32. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, come, make us gods that shall go before us. I mean, the irony here. Moses is on the top of Mount Sinai. God is speaking directly to him. He's giving them the law. And the law isn't to constrain them. The law provides them a path to flourishing, to life, to abundance. I created you, God says. I know you. I know your heart. And here's the way forward. If you abide in my word, you will live. And they can't even wait for Moses to come back down. And they say, come, Aaron, make us gods that should go before. Where'd they get this idea? Gods that should go before us. Systems of the world. Make us like these pagan nations that surround us. For as for this Moses, listen to how they talk about him. As for this Moses guy, we don't know what he's doing. He's taken way too long. Who knows? Maybe God smited him. Maybe he got to the top of the mountain and God's like, nope. We don't know if he's coming back. The man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, no, I can't do that. I wish. Okay, break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. Doesn't put up much of a fight. So all the people broke off their golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. Where'd they get their golden earrings from? Oh, they brought them from Egypt. And he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and he made a molded calf. And they said, this is, and, and they, then they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it and built an altar before it and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast of the Lord. And they rose early on the next day and they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Literally, they had an orgy around this God. We look at this and we're like, what? How? How is this possible? It's a great question, but we should be asking it in the mirror. God, you delivered me You saved me from my sin. You made me a new creation. I now have the opportunity to have a relationship with the God who spoke the heavens into existence. You are the God of mercy and love and justice and you've made a way through just an insurmountable price. You paid my debt through your son, Jesus Christ, but I'm gonna ignore you and I'm going to pursue lesser things. We think it's crazy, but it speaks to all of us because we miss what we have in him. And this had to strike a chord with the Corinthians because they were taking part in feasts dedicated to idols and sexual immorality that took place around the worship of these idols. And they were still enjoying everything that went along with this temple worship, but maybe saying, okay, I don't believe in the gods anymore. I serve one true God, but I'm still going to have a little bit of fun. And it's not fun at all. Now, you know that I'm not saying that walking 
with Christ, allowing him to be our God. God, there is no, I, I, I tell my kids this all the time. You don't understand the type of joy that exists in walking with Jesus. All these lesser things, they just don't compare. And my words fall short of you actually experiencing it. So taste and see that the Lord is good. Before the Corinthians, this had to hit home, and I pray it hits home for us. Paul says, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. He's referring to this incident in which Israel began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women. And then through that, they started worshiping the Moabite gods and worshiping Baal. It's interesting how often sexual sin and idolatry, they just go hand in hand. Guys, where there's sexual sin, the devil is hard at work. Judgment came on them in the form of a plague and over 20,000 people perished. Guys, idolatry and sexual immorality, they seem to always go hand in hand because isn't it the devil's desire to pervert God's good things? God has created sex in its context. It's beautiful. It creates deep, meaningful bonds. It brings life, but the devil wants to pervert it and use it to cause division and death. He hates the image of God and the beauty of a husband and a wife in a lifelong covenant of marriage until death do they part. That tells the story of Christ's unending love for his church. And Satan hates that picture. That's why he's hard at work trying to divide families. If we find ourselves this morning chasing after lesser things or in sexual sin and Paul's calling you away and you've said no. God's calling you away and you're saying no. That's testing God. In Acts 5, 9, remember this is New Testament stuff. And guys, understand, I'm not saying that God's gonna strike you down dead. I don't, this isn't, I don't think Paul is, well, let me rephrase that. Maybe he is trying to cast a little fear because maybe we need a little fear of God. We don't fear him like he's the boogeyman, but we fear him like he's, Niagara Falls. He's God. He despises sin because he knows what it does to his kids. And if you remember Ananias and Sapphira, as the young church was just coming into being, and all the people were giving of their property and selling it and taking care of one another, Ananias Sapphira, they came in and said that they, were, they sold their property for so and so an amount, and really they didn't. And what did Peter say? How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Here's a better example, Hebrews 3 verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling... Consider the apostle and the high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who is faithful to him who who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God." And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you will hear my voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. What does it mean to test God? It means to say no. 
to say no again, and to say no again. I'm saved. I've got what I need. I'm going to continue to live my life. And God's warning and warning and warning. That's what it means to tempt God, to test him. Or, I think we can do it this way also. Paul makes reference to complaining. I'll do it, but I'm not going to like it. I'm going to make sure everybody knows I don't like it. Is that a good witness? Yeah, I'll do what you ask me to do, God, but I'm not happy about it. That's not the witness he's looking for either. Complaining and grumbling. God cares deeply about his name. And as a Christian, we carry his name. I think that's the point here. We carry the name of his son, Jesus Christ, because it is the only name by which men and women are saved. He's concerned about how he is reflected. And Paul says, let these things serve as an example that this isn't simply Old Testament stuff. This was written for our teaching, our warning, our instruction. And he says, if we think we are standing firm, be careful lest you be destroyed. What Paul is saying here is, if you are living in sin, yet you think you are standing firm, be careful. If you are living in rebellion to God, but you think you are standing, be careful lest you be destroyed. Remember, run the race with God urgency. Discipline yourselves. Lay aside idolatry and sexual immorality, things that are common to our culture, and take our eyes off our purpose. Because our purpose is to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to continue his work in this world. And if we're entangled in sin again, we're not running the race anymore, are we? And wonderful teaching up at the men's retreat. He was talking about how many of you played football in high school. Okay, I'm not going to use that analogy. <laughs> how many of you have ever walked through a spider web and you look like a crazy person because you were trying to get it out of, out of your face? That ever happened to anybody? Okay, there we go. Um, when you walk through that web, what are you thinking about? You're not thinking about, oh, I'm just going to keep going. I know I'm headed into Chick-fil-A, so I'm just going to keep... No, you're spending time picking it out of your hair and your mouth and your beard and some of you ladies, and you're just trying to get it off. And a lot of the church today spends a lot of time just getting it off, and they're not looking at the prize. They're not looking at the race. This is serious, guys. Paul's talking about serpents and destruction and bodies scattered in the wilderness, 20,000 people dying. We might think, I'm not going to leave my house. I don't want to mess up. But look at what Paul says. He doesn't leave us there. Verse 13. He says, there is no temptation. No temptation has overtaken you. So again, this pull, this desire away from God, away from our purpose, away from his feet to worldly things, to idolatry. He says, there is no temptation that's overtaken you except as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now that way of escape is not always a way out. That's why he adds, sometimes it's just the way through so that we may able to be able to bear it. It's interesting, I, I, more and more, especially when we were going through our study of uh, the Gospels, I used to have it in my head, and you've heard it before, that God will never give you more than you can handle, right? And then I read the Gospels, and I thought, no, God consistently gives us more than we can handle. The correct phrase is, God will never give us more than he can handle, and one time I, I had made mention of that, and after the service, someone came up and they said, I hate to correct you, but that's incorrect. 
And they took me to this passage and they said, look, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. See, God won't give you more than you can handle. And, and my thought is, it's not about our autonomous abilities. I can't handle it. I know that. The many years I lived before I came to Christ, was that, that's all the evidence I need that I can't get through it without him. And look, listen to those verses. Who does it center on? Who's faithful? Me? God is faithful. Who will make a way of escape? Me? He will make a way of escape. He's the center of this. That's why Paul says, I have learned how to uh, be abased, meaning have nothing, and I've learned how to abound. I've learned how to suffer trial, and I've learned how to be blessed. And regardless of all things, I can do all things through digging in and doing my best. No, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's the center of this. So I want to encourage you, those of you who may find yourself living in rebellion to God, and I'm going to give you an opportunity, I'm going to warn you right now, at the end of this service, if you know you've been saying no to God, and you need to take a step forward and finally put that down and say yes, I'm going to have you stand and we're going to pray for you. So I'm just going to make you anxious for the rest of the service until we get to that point. But sometimes when we've been saying no for so so long, we need a bold yes. And we need our brothers and sisters to come alongside us. And understand this, all of us have been in that place. So there's no shame in it. But let me encourage you, from Luke 22, 31, the Lord said to Simon, Peter, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you. Think about that. You're living in rebellion to God. Guess who's praying for you right now? Jesus, bring him home. Holy Spirit, work. I prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, oh man, this is, I love this. Strengthen your brothers. You're not done. God has work for us. And if we can just return to him, he's going to send us back out and use us. When you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. Jesus knows we're going to fall. Jesus knows we're not going to live up to that potential. But what does he say? Return to me. And once you have, go and strengthen your brothers. All right, let's close here. Verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, again, flee from idolatry. Do you get what he's saying? Run. Run from it. I speak as to wise men, which you obviously are, he says. Judge for yourselves what I say. Now he talks about communion. The word communion here is koinonia, it's fellowship. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Isn't it our fellowship with the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the fellowship, the communion of the body of Christ? For though many are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that bread. We, we have fellowship with Jesus Christ, Paul says, through his death, through his body broken for us. Observe Israel after the flesh. And not those who eat of the sacrifice, partakers of the altar. What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or, that is, or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. The idols, they're worthless, they're man-made, but what's behind those idols? Demons. What's behind the pornography? Demons. What's behind the verbal abuse? Demons. 
what's behind the constant distraction of our devices as we scroll aimlessly, not even thinking. This sounds harsh and overly spiritual, but if it's at the expense of our time in front of Christ, demons. The enemy wants us distracted. If he can't make us bad, he makes us busy. He says, I know the idols are nothing, but the demons, they are very real. And these sacrifices are to them. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Who do we belong to? That's what Paul says. Whose table do we belong at? We belong in communion with Christ, not at the table of lesser things. And I'll tell you what, God spoke to me about this very thing. And I'll tell you this, my son knows this, my oldest son, he's at an age now where spending time with dear old dad is not his favorite thing. I don't think it's in the top 1,213 things that he likes to to do. And that's hard. Honestly, that's hard for me. Some of you dads relate to this. It used to be like, hey, I'm going to Home Depot. I'm going to wherever. Anyone want to come? And boom, he was there. That's long gone. Now I'm like, hey, can I take you out to dinner? Sushi, steak, whatever you want. Lobster, whatever. Just give me 30 minutes with you. And it's hard because I want a relationship with him so bad. And I pray and I know that time will come and I know that this is, this is a phase that all of us young men went through. But I was really struggling with it this weekend. And the Lord said, that's what I desire with you. And I'm like, man, our Father wants to commune with us. And where am I at? What table am I sitting at? What am I pursuing? I'm pursuing something. I'm going after something. I'm developing a relationship with something. We were created to worship and we all worship something. And this was just a reminder. Come back to the table where it's good. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Not all things build up. Not... Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. We are living for others. It's not about us anymore. We are living to build one another up. And so he balances it here in verse 25. I said I was closing. I kind of am. Paul's getting practical. We live in a fallen world and it's hard, isn't it? It's hard not to be influenced. How are we to be a light in a world that's so corrupt and so dark? How are we to be effective? How, how do we keep uh, this level of purity that demonstrates God's righteousness and his goodness? We know it's about abiding in him and bearing fruit, but what about interacting with non-believers? And Paul makes it really plain, and I love it here. He balances it out so we don't go... F- too far to the side of legalism. He says, eat whatever is sold in the market. When it comes to eating this meat, eat whatever's sold in the market. Don't ask questions. Just eat it. Asking no questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, guys, that's our witness. There's an opportunity there. He says, go and eat whatever is put before you. Don't look to be offended. Don't ask questions. Okay, where did this come from? Because I cannot eat meat. Sacrifice to idols. No, what's Paul about? Paul is about building bridges. But if you find out, if you're at this party and someone mentions to you, hey, that was offered to idols, now you know. And that person knows you know. 
So for the sake of the one who told you, and for conscience' sake, for the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil? Why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? So here's his point. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Whatever you do, have this thought in mind. Does this tell the story of God? Does it bring honor to his name? Is it building bridges so that people may see the love of Christ? Will it help me serve? Will it help me build up? Paul says, give no offense in verse 32, either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Whether it's Jewish people, whether it's Greek pagans, or whether it's Christians, Don't look to be offensive for the sake of being offensive. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many. Why? That they may be saved. Paul's not saying I'm a fake. He's not saying I go around pretending to be one thing. But he says, I try not to be offensive and I try even harder not to be offended. Because I want to build bridges to Christ. Now, do I take a stand for what is true and right? Absolutely. But I am not living on a high horse looking down at the world. Again, I know I've said it a hundred times. No, we are beggars showing other beggars where we found food. We are not better than anyone else. Our mission is to seek and save the lost because that's Christ's mission here on earth. And if we're entangled in sin, if we've returned to the table of demons, or maybe we're just that sin sniffer and we're looking to be offended, whatever it may be, if we know we are living in rebellion with God, this is how I want to close. If if, if you've been saying no, you know you've been saying no. I'm not talking about the everyday missteps that we all make because we're human beings. But there's this area where you're saying no, 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 and it's time to say yes and you're willing to. I'm going to ask you to be bold right now and stand. If it's time to say yes and you know it, your heart's beating a little faster than usual, man, what God has in front of you, if you'll just lay it down today, Man, is far greater than anything you're experiencing by saying no. Be free this morning. So if that's you, would you stand? Again, I just want to give that opportunity. Praise God. Praise God. Anyone join my brother Gary and say, yeah, that's me too. I just need, I need freedom. I know his plans are much higher than my own. Praise God.